The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Be it superstition or just an apparition, you suddenly appear inside my heart. Does this strange romance stand? Welcome to From the Bleachers. I'm your host, as always, Seamus Clancy, coming to you from the wonderful Lindgren Nation Radio Podcast Network. Now, recording this, what's this? Today, the 13th, the 12th, 12th, Monday afternoon, right around 3.30-ish, 4 o'clock-ish. But I'm just chilling right now. I, you know, I've been doing these, really getting back into the Eagles podcast last week, a couple weeks. I mean, I've been doing them, but I had that one positive switch two podcasts to go where I was talking about my favorite games in Eagles history during my time as a fan. So mostly recent games. And then last week's podcast, I was talking about how excited I am for 2021 to be rooting against the Dolphins and the Colts and the hopes that the Eagles get better draft picks for those from those teams this upcoming season for the 2022 draft. So no, in a crazy scenario, the Eagles could have two top 10 picks while still winning their division. If Miami and Indianapolis you know, burn out, tire fire, whatever happens. So we're, we're in a weird position in the offseason, though, so I'm trying to conjure up some nice ideas. I thought that stuff was fun. Gets people going. Because th- this isn't really a buzzy Eagles offseason. Usually even off those times, you know, coming off the 2012 offseason, the 2015 offseason, you know, 2011 offseason, there was still a lot of excitement around the team, even after, you know, the previous season didn't really hit the mark, and that just hasn't been there. And it's odd. It's not like another Philadelphia team has taken over the city. Like the Sixers were good this year, but they weren't incredible, and they have that just gigantic historical playoff loss. Flyers were a mess this year. Phillies, you know, on a decent stretch. I think they won five. five they're five and two in their last two series going into the All-Star break currently. They do have two All-Stars in the team, J.T. Romuto, the catcher, who was starting, and Zach Wheeler, pitcher, who probably should have started the game with Jacob DeGrom now, but that's a different story. Both awesome years from those guys. But, you know, this isn't 2010. This isn't 2011. The Phillies don't, you know, own the city or anything. It's still an Eagles town, but it doesn't really feel that way because there's not a lot of, you know, I don't know. It's Do people not believe in Jalen Hurts? I mean, we've seen in the past, even before my time, Philadelphia taught themselves into mediocre quarterbacks. Bobby Hoying, and then Nick Foles the first time, and then Carson Wentz, and then that didn't work out. So I'm excited for Jalen Hurts. Maybe if they go and make a move for Russell Wilson or they went in the draft, got Justin Fields, maybe that would be there. I'm a Hurts guy. I've talked about it, and I'm excited for that year. I'm excited for his year. 
But I want to have something positive today. And I'm going to talk about five of, I guess you could say, unsung, underrated, however you want to value it, Eagles in history. Now, it obviously has a recency bias, right? Guys I've seen in my lifetime, guys that may be a little bit older than me, but I know secondhand from my dad, or, you know, they're still around the game. You know, someone's going to be like, oh, you didn't have Jerry Robinson from the 1980, you know, Super Bowl team. Like, what do you want me to know about Jerry Robinson, really? You know, who who wants to listen to that? I mean, I would like to listen to someone who knows I'd talk about it, but, you know, why would I – I don't even know what words I can say. I wanted to say half, but it – I guess you could watch this on YouTube too. So subscribe to the BGN YouTube feed. There will be a link to it in the podcast description wherever you're listening to. But, you know, it's like that new I think you should leave. If you've seen I think you should leave. Second season just dropped the other week. There's a skit where, you know, they're going on this haunted haunted house tour and the tour guy's like, yeah, this is an adult only tour. So we can say whatever the hell we want. And me, that's kind of, I feel like the Tim Robinson character where I'm like trying, I want to curse, but then I don't know if I actually should. Um, But talk about five underrated Eagles, guys that I like, guys that I think are underrated both in Philadelphia and nationally. So two different levels here, and you'll be able to tell from each of the things. So number five, we talk a lot about how the Eagles haven't had great receivers in forever. And it feels like that. We talk about, you know, this player, you know, X player could be the most exciting Eagles wide receiver since rookie Deshaun Jackson. X receiver could be the first since this, since that, since Terrell Owens. And this guy wasn't on those levels, but it was still pretty damn good. Jeremy Macklin, who played in Philadelphia from 2009-2014, was a first-round pick in 2009, missed the entire 2013 season with an injury. But when he played uber productive as a rookie in 2009, he had 773 receiving yards, I believe, in four touchdowns. And then from his last four years in Philly, so 2010, 2011, 2012, missed 2013, then 2014, that four-year gap, he had over 850 receiving yards in each season, including a gigantic 2014 season, his first year playing with Chip Kelly. The last time Chip Kelly's offense really looked explosive and crazy at the NFL level had, uh, what is it, 85 catches, 1,318 receiving yards, 10 touchdowns. And that's a high number for receptions. The most receptions in Eagles history by a wide receiver is Irving Fryer in 1996 with 88 catches. So he's right up there. This is one of the best Eagles receiver seasons of all time. It's not 2004 Tyrell Owens. It's not maybe it's not even 2013 to Sean Jackson in 2008. But that's up there, 15.5 yards for reception. And we have to realize there is he was playing what slop quarterback play. It was Nick Foles, 2014 Nick Foles, who was nothing in the same realm as the 2013 miraculous Nick Foles. We saw the 27 and two. And this wasn't Nick Foles 2.0 yet from the 2017-2018 playoffs. He was a joke that year. I wanted to rip my hair out watching him play, but the Eagles got off to a 9-3 start and were looking good on offense. The defense was good. The special teams were incredible. But Jeremy Macklin was the best part of that offense. Underrated. And then Sanchez comes in. Sanchez stinks. That's one of the worst Eagle seasons ever. Like, I had a lot of fun. I talked about – I think I've talked about this season. We could go on a little tangent right here. Uh, You know, obviously a hardcore Eagles fan for as long as I have memories, right? I talk about, you know, in that game where I ranked my favorite Eagles teams ever. I had number four, I think, was week 16, 2001. They clinched the NFC East. 
title for the first time since 1988. It's the first Eagles game I remember. And I was, what, seven years old. So this is I, – I have memories of the Eagles as long as I've just had concrete memories in general. And, you know, as you get up, you're a kid and you could be goofy and crazy and kind of a freak about things. And, you know, I was while I was in fifth grade, Eagles lost in the Super Bowl, crying my eyes out, begging not to go to school the next day. My parents made me go all that. That's typical. But I think in, in 2014 and I, I've written about like my mental health and stuff. I don't I don't need to get like crazy into it, but bipolar sort of depression, you know, it's you know, part of my brand, I guess. I've written about it for BGN as my, you know, relates to my relationship with the Eagles. But I think 2014, because I was covering the team uh, for the Daily News, I was writing articles during the week about the Eagles doing previews against whoever they were playing. You know, I was going to games. It was the third year I had season tickets. And, you know, I was a junior in college, so kind of partying a lot and, you know, drinking a lot during the games, all those things. And I think that was the season where I realized this team is – like, I went – full silver linings playbook mode that year. And I realized this team was taking, you know, a detrimental hit on my life. And maybe it still is in a way, but I think I'm in a better place. And the Eagles, I guess, are in a better place now post Super Bowl where we can, I'm still get crazy and freak out, but maybe it's not. Ah, I'm lying. It does feel like the world's ending every time they lose, but you know, there is a different vibe at least. Also, Jeremy Macklin, get back on the positive train. Made some huge plays in the Miracle at the New Meadowlands game. I think that was, what, number three on my Eagles list behind Super Bowl 52 and the iconic legendary. If you could see on YouTube my uh, autograph picture of Patrick Robinson's pick six, that's obviously number one in my heart. So that's Macklin at five. Number four, we have Bobby Taylor, cornerback. From 1995 to 2003, played in Philadelphia. Only made one Pro Bowl, but he did in 2002. You know, a lot of those NFL memes pages or Philadelphia memes pages, you know, they, they, they regurgitate a lot of content and, you know, use the same memes over from years and years. And one that you frequently see is like, oh, the Eagles secondary has never been as good as it was this year. And it's a picture of 2004, and it's Lido, Sheldon Brown, Dawkins, obviously, and Michael Lewis. All four of those guys made Pro Bowls in Philadelphia. But I think that 2002 Eagles secondary may be better. You have a younger Dawkins, probably a better Dawkins. You have Troy Vincent, who, fringe Hall of Fame guy, all pro, multiple-time pro bowler for the Eagles and the Dolphins. Uh, you have Bobby Taylor, who in 2002 made the pro bowl. And you had Blaine Bishop was the opposite safe that year. He was he was past his prime. When he played in Tennessee, excellent, excellent player, probably not as good as Michael Lewis was in 2004. But I think both of those cornerbacks – are better than the other two cornerbacks from 2004. So people talk about that Jim Johnson defense, everything. That vibe started with Bobby Taylor and Troy Vincent and early Dawkins. That was part of then they had that transition period, and it was brilliant, brilliant team building to realize those guys' careers were winding down in the fill-in with Sheldon and Lido. But you can't take away – for how special those guys were. And, you know, the 2002 Eagles defense, the 2001 Eagles defense, I think the Eagles were number one in DVOA in 2001. And a lot of that's because of their defense. And their top five, I think, in 2002, you know, Don McNabb's great, Andy Reid's great coach. The strengths of those teams were the defense. It was the defense. Bobby Taylor, huge part of it, made one of the biggest plays in Eagles history, 2002. 
NFC Divisional Round game home at Veterans Stadium. The last win at the Vet, playing the Falcons in the first quarter, tied 0-0. Mike Vick throws a pick six to Bobby Taylor, takes it back to the house. He has that great image of him on his knees holding the football up in the air. You know, maybe the last glorious Eagles moment at Veterans Stadium. Sad to say in retrospect, but, you know, we're talking about that's how good Bobby Taylor was. Not someone who I think, obviously not a Hall of Famer or anything close to that, but we talk about the great Eagles cornerbacks of the early 2000s. I think younger fans talk a little bit too much about Lito and Sheldon. Obviously great players, pro bowlers, but we forget Troy Vincent, who was also awesome, even better than Bobby Taylor. But Bobby Taylor feels like a footnote because Troy Vincent has a prominent post-playing career as an executive with the NFL. But Bobby Taylor, a lot of people in Philadelphia liked him. He was a Notre Dame guy, too. So all the Irish Catholics, like my dad, absolutely adored him. My dad has, I think, he has an autographed Bobby Taylor jersey for Notre Dame hanging up in my, well, I guess, my former home, my parents' home. Uh, so I like Bobby Taylor. That was number four. Number three, next two guys, not in the Hall of Fame, should be. Bobby Taylor should be in the Hall of Fame. No, not like not even close. Troy Vincent, maybe, probably not. These two guys should be in the Hall of Fame. Number three, we have cornerback Eric Allen. Played in Philadelphia from 1988 to 1994. Made six Pro Bowls. Made three All-Pro teams. One first team, two second team. Was part of those legendary defenses under Buddy Ryan. Played again for the greatest defense of all time, the 1991 Philadelphia Eagles. He's tied for 21st in interceptions in NFL history with 54. That puts him again of these Hall of Famers. Ty Law, Champ Bailey, Deion Sanders. More than all of them. We talked about how great that defensive line was for the Eagles. And it's obviously legendary, iconic. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a second. But they were number one against the past and the run in 1991. And that past thing has a lot to do with Eric Allen. And you have, what, Andre Waters at safety and that stuff too. But Eric Allen was the best secondary player on the best defense of all time. Should be in the Hall of Fame. Number two, another guy who should be in the Hall of Fame, Clyde Simmons. You might think to yourself, I'm sure there are some Eagles fans listening to this. And I don't blame you. It's hard when you're younger and, you know, we don't necessarily have these classic sports centuries or uh, a football life about all these players in Philadelphia. We don't really have a Philadelphia equivalent, you know, in the local media here of doing stuff like that. Clyde Simmons should be in the Hall of Fame. Played for Philadelphia from 1986 to 1993. He made two Pro Bowls in Philadelphia, 91 and 92. So he was part of the great greatest defense of all time. Made first team All-Pro in 1991. Made four in his career. Two first teams with Philadelphia, 91 and 92. 92 led the NFL in sacks. 19 sacks in 1992. More than Reggie White. And, yeah, I think a lot of that is, well, He's playing opposite Reggie White. Reggie's going to get some double teams and stuff. That doesn't matter, man. That guy was an animal. Unbelievable. It made two second-team All-Pros later on in his career in 96 and 97 with the Jaguars, too, furthering not just his underrated and underlooked and unsung potential and value in Philadelphia, but nationally and in a way that should give him legitimate Hall of Fame candidacy. He has 121 and a half sacks in his career. How many tra- – we think Trent Cole was like one of this 
most underrated players ever. And Trent Cole is awesome. Great eagle. Trent Cole has 85 and a half sacks in his career. Clyde Simmons has 121 and a half. Different stratosphere as a player. Forgotten. Shouldn't be. So he was the leader in 1992. He has more sacks in his career than Von Miller, J.J. Watt, and Charles Haley. Two guys that will be in the Hall of Fame and one guy that is. Should be in the Hall of Fame. Reggie White, my mind, I'm a little biased. I'm anti-Lawrence Taylor, the best defensive player to ever play in the National Football League. Clyde Simmons, pretty damn good too, playing opposite him. Number one, should this guy be in the Hall of Fame? No. But did this guy, in a way that people nationally won't recognize and will never recognize, and maybe some younger Eagles fans don't even know, revolutionize the running back position or help to? You could say if you're being a little bit more pessimistic or less hyperbolic than I usually am. Number one, is the best running back in Eagles history. Not Wilbert Montgomery, not LaShawn McCoy. Brian Westbrook is the best running back to ever play for the Philadelphia Eagles. If he played the modern game with how prevalent it is to utilize running backs as receivers, Andy Reid did that a lot. When he was in Philadelphia, he had that true West Coast system, wasn't running the ball a lot, and did a lot of screens and dump downs to Brian Westbrook. But in the modern NFL, in a system where he's playing for Sean Payton, the way Alvin Kamara is used, or the way Christian McCaffrey's used, he's better than both of those guys. Got some numbers. If you play today, he was drafted in what, 2002? If he gets drafted in 2016 or 17, he's going to make the Hall of Fame. Same player, same, just put him in to today's NFL Hall of Fame player. In a four-year span from 2004 to 2007, he had 3,979 rushing yards, 20 rushing touchdowns for 4.7 yards per carry. Pretty efficient, nice numbers. As a receiver, just a receiver, 301 catches, 2,789 yards, and 19 touchdowns for 9.3 yards per catch. Those numbers are better than like every Eagles receiver ever. In 2007 alone, he made first team all pro in an era where there were tons and tons of great running backs. Makes first team all pro, has 1,337 yards on the ground, seven touchdowns, and then goes for 90 catches for 771 yards and five touchdowns through the air. He has the second most catches ever in a single season for an Eagle behind Zach Ertz's 116 catch season in 2018. So he has second most, obviously most for a running back. He had more catches that year than any Eagles receiver ever. No, imagine an Eagles player, Eagles receiver, I should say, catching 90 balls in a season. You can't know why it's never happened. Brian Westbrook's receiving numbers those year, that year, would be one of the best ever for an Eagles receiver. And the guy played running back. And in everywhere, they didn't throw the ball to the running back that much. They didn't use him as, as frequently in the slot and all these different ways they could have lined him up the way the NFL offenses do now. Give him a modern NFL mastermind, and that guy is going to go in the Hall of Fame. Four-year span, 6,768 6, scrimmage yards, 39 touchdowns. Low-key big what if. Big what if in Eagles history. People don't talk about it. 2003, obviously, 
the Eagles in Week 17 clinch home field advantage throughout the playoffs. They end up playing at home in the NFC Championship game, lose to the Carolina Panthers, one of the worst Eagles games ever, 14 to 30. And that Week 17 game, the Eagles go down to Miami to clinch the NFC home home quarter home field advantage. They didn't obviously clinch it to win the whole conference. He gets hurt in that game, misses the playoffs. Yeah, the division around the Eagles beat the Packers. They needed the miracle that was 40th and 26 to get there. And then one of the worst Eagles offensive performances ever in 2003, where they, they lose 14 to 3. McNabb gets hurt in that game. And just Todd Pinkston and all these crap receivers getting mauled by Ricky Manning Jr. and all this crap. But, you know, if Westbrook plays in that game, the dynamic offensive weapon that he was whether it's a screen pass, a dump down, or maybe even a punt return in a high-leverage situation, maybe that game goes a different way, and maybe the Eagles make the Super Bowl that year, which would have been for the first time in my life. Maybe they upset New England in the Super Bowl itself. They played down in Houston that year, I believe. Brian Westbrook does a great podcast now with Adam Lefko. Adam Lefko, recurring guest on here on From the Bleachers. Love Westbrook. There are other guys you consider Troy Vincent. Trent Cole himself could have been on here. And then you even think of guys who were on the 2017 Eagles. Nigel Braddon was incredible that year. Rodney McLeod has had an unheralded career as an Eagle, still on the team now. Look at some different offensive linemen from over the years. John Runyon, Todd Harriman's, Jermaine Mayberry, Hank Fraley. Lots of good offensive linemen here in my life. Some defensive players. You have Hugh Douglas was really good. Jeremiah Trotter could have been on this list. Not a Hall of Fame or anything. Very, very good player. Cross the NFL multiple time pro bowler. McNabb. People hate him, but it, I think he could have been worthy on this list. If you have any other players you you would suggest, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram. We're gonna put this. Did a little tease post today on the Bleeding Green Instagram app, Bleeding Green Insta, asking our followers. Who's the most underrated player in Eagles history? I did five pictures of the five guys I chose. Let us know on there. Tweet me at shameless underscore Clancy. Be plugging this out on social media tomorrow. Maybe do a quick write up on BGN about my five guys. So tease people and get them to listen to the podcast. Seems that seems smart, right? That, that's smart. Be sure to subscribe to the BGN YouTube page. Just type in Bleeding Green Nation on YouTube. Picture will come up of my dumb face, and then you'll realize. Oh, this is this idiot's videos. I need to like them and leave a good review and subscribe to them. What else we got going? Black Widow. Do a little couple minutes spoilers on Black Widow. There's nothing else for the Eagles content wise. So if you're out, if you want to listen to Black Widow, didn't have super high expectations for the spoilers. Spoilers, spoilers. I like to go on everything absolutely clean. So again, I'm just if you, if you're listening to this, I'm saying spoiler 35 times. If you get spoiled, it's on you at this point. Give you five seconds. One. Two, three, four, five. It's not even a spoiler-heavy movie because only so much can happen since Black Widow or Natasha, however you want to say, you know, died in the middle of Avengers Endgame back in 2019. This is a prequel. It slots in nicely in between Infinity War and Captain America and Civil War. And people are like, why is this movie getting made? There's no point. You know, well, no, it's a good point sometimes telling a good story, having some fun. I think back to Star Wars Rogue One when it came out or was coming out. I'm thinking this movie is set between episodes three and episode four. We already know what happens to those movies. What are we going to really get here? We're going to get some original characters. Are we going to get a nice story? And know what? 
I see people who say that's their favorite Star Wars movie. It's not mine, but I think it's very, very good. You know, better than most of the new trilogy, better than the old trilogy, the sequel trilogy, you know, better than Return of the Jedi, I think. It's really good. It works as a standalone story. It has heart, has a beginning, middle, and end. It works even though you know the fate of some of these people in this and you know what's going to happen to Darth Vader and the Skywalkers and all those things. Just because we know Natasha Romanoff dies in Avengers Endgame doesn't mean this isn't a worthwhile story. You get Elena, Florence Pugh's character, gets introduced. Incredible. She will be in the future of the MCU. She will be the future Black Widow. She is teaming up, as you saw in the post credit scene, with Julia Louise Dreyfus's Madame Hydra, the Contessa, going to start the Thunderbolts with John Walker, U.S. agent, maybe a little uh, Thunderbolts or Dark Avengers vibe they got going on right there. You get Abomination, maybe Thunderbolt Ross turns into the Red Hulk himself. Got some fun stuff cooking in the MCU. We don't know where a lot of things are going to happen right now. We know some of the bigger stuff. It's going to be happening with the multiverse, with Doctor Strange, with Spider-Man, with Wanda, those things. But there is a ground level characters to follow right here. I think the Thunderbolts and Dark Avengers thing is right there. And you're going to see that Florence Pugh's character by what we see at the end should be in the Hawkeye series that's coming out later this fall with Jeremy Renner reprising his role as Clint Barton and Haley Steinfeld will play Kate Bishop, who if you've read the iconic, I'm not using that word lightly, iconic run uh, started in 2012, the Hawkeye series by Matt Fraction and David Aja. One of the best Marvel runs ever. Maybe besides Frank Miller's, I put it the top, it's my top three Marvel run ever, ever. Literally, best Marvel comic ever besides Frank Miller's Daredevil and Grant Morrison's New X-Men. It's that good. It's legendary. It's only like 22 issues. It's all self-contained. You don't have to read all these disparate tie-ins and events. You know, 22 issues. Go buy the trades at a comic book store. Buy them on Mar read them on Marvel Unlimited, buy them digitally, whatever. One of the best Marvel series ever, and it'll make you fall in love with both Clint, even if you don't really like Jeremy Renner's portrayal of him, and definitely Kate Bishop, who hopefully, I hope, gets transitioned into the true real Hawkeye in the MCU and then kind of let Jeremy Renner's character go more Bruce Wayne, Batman, Beyond type and let Kate handle the action. But Black Widow blew me away. Nonstop action. That first seat, I felt like I was in one of those Universal Studios rides, like squirming around in my seat. It was awesome. David Harbour is awesome. David Harbour crushes everything he comes in. And who knows? Maybe he comes in and plays in that Thunderbolt, Stark Avengers, team up, movie, whatever happens with that, with the Contessa, Madame Hydra, whatever we want to end up calling her. I'm excited. Low-key, this will come out Tuesday, so we don't know what's going to happen. You might have already seen the finale of Loki, some Loki spoilers, I guess I should say. You know, I'm thinking maybe Kang the Conqueror is the big bad, and that you know leads into – the second season of Loki or the next Ant-Man movie, because we know Ant-Man uh, and the Quantum and the Quantum Mania. Is that what it's called? Ant-Man 3. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Yeah, that's right. I'm always right. Uh, we know Jonathan Majors from Lovecraft Lovecraft Country. Good show. Not renewed for a second season, unfortunately. Good novel. Read the novel first. I read books. I'm cool like that. And he will play Kang the Conqueror in that, but I could see that being the tease here as we see Kang the Conqueror is at the end of time, this, this time traveling, sometimes villain, sometimes a young hero and the, the young Avengers as Iron Lad. I could see them in there. But yeah, that's we're getting on a little 
little run here, maybe uh, have some MCU questions, Loki questions. I always solicit questions in my weekly mailbag. So be sure to follow me on Twitter at Seamus underscore Clancy because I will plug. I'll ask questions every Monday, I think, for the news, for the mailbag. I get newsletter and mailbag confused all the time because that feels like all I'm writing is newsletters and mailbags. But I'll ask for questions for the Bleeding Green mailbag, get hit with some low-key or MCU stuff aside just Eagles and Philly sports questions. Just hit me up on there. G-N.